listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and it is Friday, the 16th of April in Seoul, and it's still the evening of Thursday, the 15th of April on the west coast of the United States, where I'm joined by today's guest, General H.R. McMaster. Before I get started, a reminder to our listeners, please to leave a review and also consider becoming a subscriber to NK News, as today's guest already is. All right, my guest today to give the full introduction is retired United States Army Lieutenant General Dr. H.R. McMaster, who served as United States National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump from February 2017 to April 2018. He has a very distinguished military career and more decorations and badges than I have suits. He's also the author of Dereliction of Duty about U.S. failure in the Vietnam War and a book that came out just last year, Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world which will be published in a Korean translation in April of this year. It's a big book, 560 pages, uh, and you'll find uh, General McMaster on Twitter and Instagram at LTGHRMcMaster, all one word, of course. Welcome on the show, General McMaster. Jacko, it's great to be with you. I'm a big fan. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. As they say in the radio world, long-time listener, first-time caller, right? Exactly, exactly. Excellent. Okay, well, we've got lots of questions. Let's see how far we can get through them today. First of all, a big sort of overall question. Uh, you're a former military man. How do you feel about the use of war, preemptive strikes and kinetic action to resolve conflicts? Well, I mean, not to resolve conflicts, but I think maybe to either prevent conflict, deter conflict by having those capabilities, mm. uh, or, uh, or to resolve a threat uh, at, the, at the least possible cost, right? I mean, it's I think it's important to remember what the, the English philosopher and theologian G.K. Chesterton said, which is war is not the best way of settling differences, but it might be the only way to ensure that they're not settled for you. Uh, so to narrow in a little bit there, um, when is the use of, say, for example, preemptive strikes or kinetic action against North Korea an advisable option? Well, I just think that you have to you would have to evaluate any particular situation on its own merits, right? Because right. you would have to take into context uh, really with the re recent events, right? What is what have there been tensions between mm. North Korea and South Korea? Has North Korea been been threatening South Korea uh, or, or Japan? Uh, do, is the is is it the assessment of the intelligence community that this is not a missile test, but a potential mm. missile strike, right? So it's right. it's really impossible, Jacko, to to, uh, to to predict exactly the, the situation uh, that one might encounter or the right. decision that someone might make. I think it's critical, though, yeah. to have options, right, to ensure that we, that within the alliance, develop the surveillance and, and intelligence and, and military capabilities to defend ourselves effectively. That might entail, we hope not, that mm. might entail at some point a preemptive strike. But of course, a strike never ends things, Jacko. Right? It's, it's usually the beginning yeah. of a much more complicated interaction and could lead to, to a destructive war. Now, uh, chapter 11 of your book, Battlegrounds, which I, I spent the last week going through, uh, you, that's the first of two chapters focusing on negotiations with North Korea. And you called chapter 11 the definition of insanity. Is that a reference to the popular definition of insanity as doing the same thing again and again, but expecting different results? It, it is. It is. And the point that I was trying to make, Jacko, is that it doesn't make sense to repeat the failed pattern of previous efforts to get North Korea to denuclearize. 
Yes, I, I did wonder if that was what you were getting at. Uh, you call the agreed framework of 1994 a weak nuclear agreement. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of people who still think the 1994 agreed framework was a good agreement as a step along the way, not a once and for all final agreement. Why do you see it as weak? Well, just consider what's happened since then, Jacko. It's an agreement that was broken by the North. And that same cycle of, of provocation by North Korea followed by a clamoring to negotiate demands by North Korea to make payoffs just for the privilege of talking to them, long drawn out negotiation processes during which many concessions are made, and then in entering into a new agreement which locks in the status quo as the new normal, and, and then, uh, and then you know, repeat the pattern, has been, has been the pattern. And of course, in, in 1994, we thought, oh, well, you know, North Korea is pretty far away. Uh, from a, from a nuclear capability, a nuclear weapons capability, but of course they're not that far away now. In 1994, at the time, uh, you know, it may have it may have seemed that it's going to be way down the road that North Korea would be able to threaten the world with the most destructive weapons on Earth. But really, it's not that long ago, is it, Jacko? No. Uh, no. Now, you also point out that the agreed framework had not been approved by the U.S. Senate. Uh, and that led some people uh, to uh, suggesting that the U.S. also uh, broke that uh, agreement. But if the U.S. Congress had actually got behind the agreement, instead of hoping that the North Korean state would collapse and they wouldn't have to uh, uh, fulfill the agreement, would things have turned out differently? Well, I, I think possibly. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have gotten through the Senate, though, though, too, Jacko. And this is what's important when we talk about the United States going back on other agreements, right? The, the Paris Agreement under the Trump administration, the Iran nuclear deal. If it's not a treaty, it can quite easily be reversed by executive order. So if you want an agreement to stick, yeah. it's time for the, the executive branch to go to that first branch of government and make the case why this agreement is in the interests of the American people. So for something to be long term and to be really sticky, it's got to go through Congress, not just from the White House. Well, it should. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case. We've, yeah. we've had policies that without... Uh, without Senate approval that, that have stood the test of time. But, but I think in this case, it would have been appropriate. And it would have been appropriate as well to try to make the case for these other agreements that I mentioned uh, that, that, uh, that we, we've gotten out of. And, and now the, the new administration is, is getting back into in, in connection with the, the Paris Accord yeah. uh, or is trying to, to, to craft a, a new form of a, an Iran nuclear deal. Now, uh, you also write uh, skeptically of the six-party talks and the agreements that were made in 2007 and 2008. Uh, where should things have been approached differently, in your opinion, with regard to the six-party talks? Well, Jacko, I think at this stage, the objective has to be denuclearization and the dismantlement of the program. And I know that you may say, OK, well, that's unrealistic. But I think we, at this stage, we have to at least test the thesis that Kim Jong-un can be convinced that he's safer and better off mm. without the weapons than he is with them. And anything short of that, I think, represents too great a danger to the world for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's not just the direct threat, which is, of course, a grave concern to South Korea and to Japan, but it's also the growing threat to more distant countries. And I would include, of course, the United States, but also Russia and China and others. It's really the, the threat from the proliferation of nuclear weapons, because when North Korea becomes recognized as a nuclear power, hey, who's next or who doesn't get a nuclear weapon? And I think certainly there's already the beginning of a debate. And I think you saw maybe this recent study uh, from a South Korean think tank and RAND 
recommending discussions about a South Korean nuclear capability or at yeah. least theater weapons back on South Korean soil. So this is destabilizing. It's not in anybody's interest. And then finally, well, North Korea has never met a weapon. It didn't try to sell to somebody, including its own nuclear weapons program to Syria until the Israeli Defense Force bombed that facility in 2007. So I think the only acceptable objective at this point is the dismantlement of the nuclear program. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to uh, to China's role uh, in all this. But before we do, um, so South Korea and the United States, of course, are in, a in an alliance. And you write uh, in your book that, uh, quote, over the years, the approaches that the US and South Korea took towards North Korea had all too often been divergent. Uh, so t tell us about the sometimes aligned and sometimes divergent approaches <laughs> that the US and South Korea have taken to North Korea over the years and where things were at when you became United States National Security Advisor and had that very important meeting with your South Korean counterpart, Jong Yong in June 2017. Well, I think it's really important for, for us as allies to, to make explicit the assumptions on which we base our policy and then to come up with just some agreed principles and too often uh, the, the South Korean government, especially during the during the 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 uh, the, the period of of uh, the sunshine policy, was driven by this assumption that opening up to North Korea uh, would would fundamentally change the nature of the North Korean regime uh, and therefore remove the, the threat. Uh, on the U.S. side, oftentimes uh, the assumption was that that North Korea it, it's it's it is and Victor Cha, who's who's of course uh, I respect tremendously and, and have learned so much from over the years. You know, the title of his book, The Impossible State, it's just an impossible state. I mean, therefore, just have strategic patience. You isolate that regime and it's going to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions and and uh, and because of its own dysfunction. Hmm. Well, I, of course, neither one of those assumptions turned out to be true. And, and, and I think it is important for it was important for us, for, you know, for President Moon's uh, government, President Trump's administration to really agree to a set of assumptions and and the, those assumptions were really a, a rejection of those previous approaches that we didn't think that it was it was it was um, it was realistic to assume that the that the Kim family regime would collapse. Remember, of course, when Kim Jong Un came into power, um, a lot of people thought that that would that would be that could be the case. He was an yeah. unknown quantity. It didn't seem as if he would have the you know the the dictator's skill set as his father and and grandfather had. And, and, and so I, I think it was important for us to say, okay, well, we can't wait for just the, the regime to collapse. It's too dangerous hmm. uh, in, in connection with the nuclear program and the capabilities that they've developed. And we, and we also rejected this idea that an opening to the North uh, would solve all the problems. And, uh, you know, of course, so much of, um, so much of what I've learned about North Korea has come from, from one of your experts and, and who's frequently on this program is Dr. Lankoff. And, ah. and, uh, and I think that, that he dispenses with both of those assumptions quite well in the real North Korea. So as a pro-alliance man, how, do, how is the, well, what's the best way to work through differences in policy and intentions between uh, South Korea and the United States? Well, I think the best, the best approach that I've found over the years is to first listen, right? And, and, uh, and what, I would, what I would do with my counterparts, and I, had, I was very fortunate to have very wise counterparts from whom I could learn, Mm -hmm. is to ask them how they saw the, the nature of this challenge. What were their greatest concerns? What were their ideas uh, about how we could take an, a different approach that would have a, a higher chance of, of succeeding than, than the, the, the pattern of, of previous, failed pattern of previous efforts? 
and and that's what I would typically do, right? With with uh, with uh, Chung Weung and and as as well as uh, uh, Yachi Shitaro from Japan uh, and others. And and I think what we were then able to do is is to to compare and contrast how each of us solve this complex problem set and then find common ground, right? Emphasize the principles on which we were all comfortable uh, that, that, that we could, you know, that we could use to, to, to base our actions, our initiatives, our, our, our the multinational effort that we hope to galvanize. And, and uh, I think, it, I think it worked for it. It worked for a time. In what ways does North Korea uh, seek to exploit so-called daylight or differences between us and South Korean policy? Well, I, I think that's the name of the game, isn't it? Is <laughs> really to try to to try to divide uh, to to divide uh, South Korea from uh, from the United States. I mean, South, uh, North Korea would like to see uh, U.S. forces leave South Korea. I think as as the first step in in the ultimate goal of 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 red banner you know, red colored unification. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds for to some of your listeners, it probably sounds kind of Doctor Evil esque, right? Like, could they? Is that really what he wants to do? But I think we have to at least believe what the Kim family regime has said, right, across three ge- generations and prepare for that, that worst case scenario. So anything that can divide us, it, North Korea will try to, to use that to its advantage. And so will China, by the way, Jacko, is China will, will, will try to use the issue of North Korea, North Korea's nuclear and weapons programs. Uh, to, to divide the United States from its two key allies in Northeast Asia, South Korea and, and Japan. And they love, of course, to see, you know, dissent uh, and, and anger and, and, and a difficult relationship between South Korea and Japan as well. But isn't it fair to say that North Korea has gained limited mileage out of uh, exploiting differences between the U.S. and South Korea? I mean, U.S. troops are still here and there's no real, uh, I mean, I don't see any real political force in South Korea that's calling for uh, the retreat of U.S. troops from yeah. the, the Korean Peninsula? You know, I, I, th- I think that's right, Jacko, but that doesn't mean they're going to stop trying, right? If you go back, remember the late 60s when yeah. uh, w- when there was really an, an, an intense, uh, counter, I mean, insurg- insurgent, <laughs> insurgency effort attacks on, on U.S. and South Korean forces were very high. I mean, we lost far more soldiers in South Korea in the late 1960s than we did in Afghanistan in recent years. And oh. I think people forget you know, how difficult a time that was. And then of course, it was during the Carter years where there was a, a, a great deal of discussion about well, why are US forces still there? And, and, and you may have noticed that in the United States, there is kind of a resurgent sentiment uh, toward at least deep doubts about sustained commitments abroad. I, I won't yeah. say it's neo-isolationism, uh, but, there, but there's a great deal of skepticism about US forces positioned abroad especially now that South Korea is a wealthy country, that it has the ability to defend itself. Mm. And so it's very important, I think, for U.S. leaders to always frame the commitment to the alliance uh, in, 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 uh, in, in, in uh, terms of U.S. interests and what it means to the American people, why it is important to the United States to, to, to preserve and strengthen this, this very important alliance. Now, do you believe that China wants to push the United States out of Northeast Asia entirely? I do, <laughs> I do, and 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 I think that that the the uh, the the objective would be to isolate its its main regional rival Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and of course what China is doing broadly, I think it's quite obvious, uh, ec- economically and militarily, is trying to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, how else do you explain 
bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier? How yeah. else do you, do you explain uh, you know, a campaign of economic coercion against Australia? Uh, the, the land grab in the South China Sea now with 200 maritime militia craft there as we speak, the, the threats to Taiwan, Japan, Senkakus, and an unprecedented number uh, of airspace violations uh, against uh, South Korea and Japan uh, by by Chinese air by the Chinese People's Liberation Army Air Force. Now, doesn't this all run directly contrary to any attempt to getting a broad international support for pressure on the North Korean regime and therefore denuclearization? It does, and and it would be great. And Victor's really, I think, uh, clear about this in his book about about the many attempts uh, over time to get China to do more, right? To convince to convince uh, Pyongyang uh, to divest itself of its of its nuclear uh, program and its and its missile program, uh, which China has never really done in in a concerted manner. And 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 uh, I, I, our hope was though, and and it's, it was worth trying, Jacko, is to try mm-hmm. to convince Chinese leadership that it was in their interest to, well, to and- pursue uh, to pursue denuclearization of, of North Korea. We're not going to get the, the Chinese Communist Party to do us a solid, to do us yeah, a favor, yeah. right? I mean, we have to, we have to uh, convince them that it's in their interest. Well, that's exactly my, my next question is how, because you, you said earlier that uh, it's not in China's interest for North Korea to have nuclear weapons because it, it potentially destabilizes the whole region. It encourages other people, other actors, including South Korea, to get their own nuclear weapons. Why is it that China doesn't seem to be convinced that it's against its own interests for North Korea to have nuclear weapons? Well, Jacko, it's because we we have a North Korea strategy and China has a U.S. strategy. And that the objective of that U.S. strategy is to push us out of Northeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and and North Korea is, is, is a foil, a wedge that can help them do that. It's also, as you know, and, and I've heard many times on NK Pro on the website and on this podcast, yeah. is is that 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 uh, China also does fear state collapse in the north because it likes to have the geographic buffer, you know, mm-hmm. between what it sees as a, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, military capabilities and and a U.S. ally in the in the south, uh, and and I think there are ways to allay China's concerns about that um, in, in a way that can begin to make progress at some point, maybe not with Xi Jinping, maybe not at this moment, but at some point to convince the, the Chinese leadership that it is in their interest to pursue denuclearization. I mean, they could do it, Jacko, as you know, tomorrow if they wanted to, um, because they hold tremendous coercive power uh, economically uh, over, over North Korea. It's, you, 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 can't, you, can't, you can't fire missiles without fuel, Jacko, and they got all their fuel uh, from, from China. Is it then simply that China, for China, uh, North Korea's military capability is a uh, nuclear capability, rather, is a a lower order priority than uh, the other interests of, uh, you know, getting the U.S. out of Northeast Asia and uh, establishing Chinese primacy? I think that's correct. I think that's correct, and I, I think that's mistaken. Uh, but but I think that that you know I I, I don't pretend to think to, to understand you know the the logic. Uh, within within uh, within the Chinese Communist Party leadership and and how Xi Jinping is being advised, uh, but but I do think that's a correct statement, right? The priority is is more toward pushing the United States out, pursuing this new you know, form of a of a tributary system across the Indo Pacific, uh, and and if the if the risk associated with that is is a perpetuation of of North Korea's nuclear missile programs, I think China has been up to this point willing to accept that risk. Mm. 
Now, you, you're quite critical in your book of the sunshine policy pursued under South Korea's presidents uh, Kim Dae-jung and Norma Hyun, and you also write that Washington remained weak in its response by continuing to engage the North Korean government for talks. Why is engaging the North Korean government for talks weak in your eyes? Well, it's, it's not weak. No, I, I think it depends on, on when it happens and under what conditions. Ah. And, and, uh, and, and I think if you engage in talks in a way where you're seen as clamoring and desperate to have talks, mm -hmm. if you're pursuing talks in a way in which you're making payoffs and alleviating sanctions just to, for the privilege of sitting at the table, you know, then you're giving up the leverage that you actually need maybe to get to an agreement that's consistent with your interests. And so I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's wrong uh, to, to talk to North Korea under the right conditions. And of course, I didn't oppose President Trump doing it in part. And I read the book because I, yeah. I knew he was going to do it anyway. Well, but what, yeah. I, what I tried to do is, is manage what I saw as the downside you know, risk associated with, uh, with, with the summit in Singapore and the subsequent summit in, in Hanoi. I was gone by then. I was out of the job. Mm. But by, by trying to, to make the case that it would be a very big mistake to alleviate the pressure on North Korea in advance of the summit and therefore you know, uh, really remove the incentive, right, for getting to some sort of an agreement on, on denuclearization. And of course, you know, it's, it's, not all, it's not all disincentives, right? There are also incentives associated with the summit. It's been pretty well covered in terms of uh, President Trump's uh, discussions with, uh, with Kim Jong-un and his effort to persuade him that, that he, was, he would be. And North Koreans, which I don't think he really cares about, sadly, Jacko, uh, but, mm. but uh, th that they would be much better off, obviously, with, uh, with a deal involving denuclearization. So what's the right mixture of carrots and sticks that should be brought to bear in negotiations with North Korea? Is it that the, the carrots should be on a, you know, like on a very long fishing pole somewhere out in front and the stick should be quite close by? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I usually try not to use carrots and sticks because, you know, it's, it does oversimplify. But I, I do think it's important that whatever approach is taken in North Korea is an approach that integrates all elements of power and efforts of like-minded partners. And so, for example, there are those who want to, to uh, portray diplomatic efforts as completely distinct from military efforts uh, to prepare for the worst. And, and, once, and once you divorce them from one another, you give up a, a very important incentive uh, for negotiation and, and, and an incentive uh, that, that is important to convince the North that they're safer without the weapons uh, than, they, than they are with them. And so I, I think that preparations, the military exercises in particular, the President Trump canceled, I think that was a mistake or mm. postponed, um, as, as well as the introduction of new capabilities the THAAD missile system, for example, or offensive long-range conventional missiles that have the ability to, to kill the archer, so to speak, as well as shoot down the arrows, the, and other, other capabilities that are relevant to, to ensuring deterrence by denial, but also convincing uh, Kim Jong-un and those around him that he can't accomplish his objectives anyway through the use of force. And so these, these, you know, th this nuclear program, missile program, is a lodestone around his neck. And to, and to his disadvantage. What attitude should American negotiators adopt when talking with uh, North Korean counterparts? Should they treat them as representatives of the government of a real legitimate state, or should they talk to them as if they're members of a terrorist group? Well, I mean, I think you have to treat them as, as members of a legitimate state, or you're not going to be able to have an effective negotiation. If you think that they are uh, a terrorist group and they, they have, you know, that 
redesignated as, as a terrorist uh, state sponsor of terrorism, um, then, then, then really you're, you're not going to get very far in that negotiation. That doesn't mean you have to condone the nature of the regime. It doesn't mean you have to make statements like those that President Trump made uh, during the run-up to the summits and in between the two summits, uh, which I which I found inappropriate and insulting to the to the you know to the to the, the victims of this brutal regime. But but you know I I think uh, you know I think that if you're going to negotiate, you have to do so in a way you know, and this is basic negotiation and mediation theory that tries to separate the relationship between negotiators on both sides, you mm-hmm. know, from the tough issues that are at hand. So if, if you go in and have a relationship of animosity from the beginning, it's unlikely you're going to be able to get anywhere. The yeah, problem, that, though, Jacko, the problem, as you know, too, is you know, the bottom up hasn't worked very well, right, it, it, yeah. in negotiations with, with, uh, with North Korean delegations, partly because they're deathly afraid of saying anything or committing to anything that, that, uh, you know, that, that the Kim family dictator of the day, Kim Jong-un today, uh, would disapprove of. And, you know, before you know it, you're in front of a firing squad or, or an aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft gun. But also the, uh, uh, the, the, poli- the Obama policy of not talking, you know, the strategic patience, that was clearly, uh, uh, in hindsight, wasn't a, a great idea either. Well, you know, Jacko, there are no easy solutions to this. And I tried not to be you know, hyper judgmental in, in the book. I just tried to point out where the previous approaches broke down and to make the point, hey, let's try something different, right? Because the previous efforts did not work. They were all well-meaning. These were all good people who were trying to do the right thing for, for U.S. interests, for South Korean interests, for, the, for humanity's interests, uh, and it didn't work. So, you know, the whole, the whole premise of Battlegrounds is that we should learn from the recent past uh, to, to understand the present and make a projection into the future, right? And yeah. and um, and so th- that's the the method I use through the book is to is to tell tell recent history, try to draw the lessons from that history, or at least use that history to ask the right questions and maybe avoid making the same mistakes. Should a policy of regime collapse or regime change be actively pursued by the United States? Maybe at some point, Jacko. I, I don't think. Uh, Maybe now it's necessary, but I think at some point it may come down to that, right? I mean, it's just a question of what is the degree to which you are willing to accept uh, a, a regime, the only communist, uh, you know, hereditary communist dictatorship in the world, uh, uh, having the, the most destructive weapons on earth and being able to strike, you know, your population centers with them, right? So at some point, you know, there may be very difficult decisions to make about changes in policy. Uh, that that would lead you know leaders, uh, the uh, allied leaders, to conclude that uh, that it's n- it's no longer acceptable uh, to 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 have this regime uh, in this position to threaten our, our people and, and all humanity. About, by the way, you're talking about at some point in the future that might be the the uh, the policy uh, to to use. But would you say that it's fair to characterize that certain people in the American government uh, in the past have pursued such a policy? Well, I don't think so. We've never done it in a, in a way that was that that was uh, determined anyway. Mm. You know, I I think that I mean it's arguable that the United States could you know could end the the Kim family regime tomorrow, right? But that would be an act of war, yeah. and and in in our democracy, you know, we would have to obviously involve the American people and the representatives in Congress in that decision. Uh, I, there there were there was talk at some point, Jacko, when I was National Security Advisor. Of asking Congress uh, for authorization f- uh, for use of military force 
as part, of course, of this effort to convince Kim Jong-un that he was safer without the weapons than, than he is with them. You know, I, I don't think that there's any sort of a move to do anything like that now. But of mm. course, you can envision circumstances under which that kind of discussion would occur, right? And let's hope it doesn't get to that point. Can you understand why your alliance partner, South Korea, might be reluctant to pursue such a policy of force or, uh, or regime collapse? Absolutely, I can. <laughs> and, and this is why this is why we didn't do anything, at least when I was national security advisor, without yeah. uh, without very close cons constant consultation, really, uh, with my counterpart, Chung Wee Young. I, I thought we, we were on the phone with each other. I, I think I talked it with him more than I talked to my wife during that year. Wow. OK, that is something. So you were on the phone almost daily with each other. The, well, that, I mean, not, I wouldn't say almost daily, but I mean, quite uh -huh. frequently, weekly, certainly. Right. And, uh -huh. and sometimes multiple times a week, depending, you know, depending on the circumstances. And and I really appreciated it. I mean, he is a, he's, a, he's a great statesman. He is a he is an empathetic, uh, good person, you know, and he's someone who is he, he, he it's he's deceptively young. OK, he's 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 older than he looks and seems. Yeah. And and he lived through the Korean War, Jacko. He knows the cost of war and he knows how important it is to deter another destructive war from happening, especially after all that the South Korean people have achieved. So so, uh, you know, I, I had really could have asked for no better counterpart uh, than Chung Wee Young. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, he's he is the uh, the current foreign minister. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Uh, We'd love to have him on the show. So if you've still got him on the WhatsApp or something, if you drop him a line and encourage him to come on the podcast, he would be more than welcome. Well, there's there's a picture in Battlegrounds of us uh, in uh, on the patio of, of my house uh, uh -huh. uh, with Matt Pottinger. And and I'll tell you, I really enjoyed my time with him. Um, and, and we had very candid discussions. I tell the story in the book of how I think we helped uh, to solve the, you know, the, the, uh, the tensions over the THAAD missiles. Uh, yeah. On a, on on a napkin, on a cocktail napkin, napkin uh, which I which which uh, Matt Pottinger still has, and and I still intend to to have that framed and uh, and and send that uh, to. to ah, I did wonder. So it hasn't been framed yet. It has not been framed yet, but it is in safe. It is is in safekeeping uh, with <laughs> with Matt Pottinger. Now you left the uh, the Trump administration a couple of months before that historic meeting between the leaders of the United States and North Korea. How did you look upon that summit in Singapore at the time, and how do you look back on it now? Well, Jack, you know, I thought, okay, it, it would it was there to lose, right? At that at that point, mm. if we kept the campaign of maximum pressure in place, you know, th these were two, you know, <laughs> uh, th these were two uh, leaders uh, who did not have really a track record of of uh, you know of diplomacy. I mean, Kim Jong Un was still unpredictable. We we knew, I mean, we could predict that he's going to continue to be a brutal dictator. He was going to continue to victimize his own people, but we didn't know how he would respond, right, to, in, in this kind of a, you know, this kind of an atmosphere of a summit. And who I mean, who knows, right? I mean, maybe there could have been a breakthrough, Jacko. I don't know what your yeah. guests were saying at the time and, and, uh, and what the speculation was about it. I think everybody would have put the chances of, 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 of being very low, but it, I mean, it was worth the shot, right? And I, and I think that that uh, that that once uh, once it went to a second summit in Hanoi, and it was clear that the two sides had wildly different expectations. Uh, that summit failed, and I think it was good that the second summit failed because because we didn't compromise, we didn't make concessions just for the privilege of continued negotiation. And and I think that that's the message. I hope Kim Jong Kim Jong Un and and those around him got is that that we had taken a fundamentally different approach. And I think so far. 
uh, based on what Secretary Blinken has said, and, and I, I know you probably followed his Senate testimony uh, closely when he was talking about North Korea, yeah. it seems like there is going to be a great deal of continuity uh, between administrations. That could change, of course. Hmm. Uh, but but I don't think that that uh, that that Secretary Blinken, you know, Wendy Sherman, who's coming back into government, I don't think they're going to try to just do what they did in the past. I think that they've reassessed the situation and and uh, and so far are continuing the the strategy of maximum pressure again to test the thesis that that Kim Jong Un could be convinced that he's better off without the weapons than he is with them. You were replaced by um, uh, as national security advisor by Ambassador John Bolton. Did you both share a similar stance on negotiations with North Korea? You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, I had a you know I had a a, a good transition uh, with Ambassador Bolton, as you know, after the president announced that I was leaving. I stayed on for a couple of weeks and yeah. and uh, did everything I could with our staff to ensure smooth transition. Of course, we talked about North Korea. We talked uh, in particular about the strong relationship that we had with uh, with the South Korean leaders leadership and the Japanese leadership and and the principles we had agreed upon and so forth. I I shared with him my concerns that that a summit not not uh, you know not not precipitate uh, a premature alleviation of, of pressure on the North and so forth. I think he shared that sentiment. Uh, but but I don't really know what happened. I you know I headed for California after that, Jacko. After, uh, mm. after I left uh, Washington in, in March of or April of of uh, 2018. Now I've not met Ambassador Bolton, and we haven't had him on the show yet. We do hope to at some stage, perhaps when his book comes out uh, in Korean. Uh, but I got the impression from his public pronouncements, at least, that he comes across as a bit more hawkish than you do. Despite well, not being to, a military you, man, well, <laughs> you'll have to make your own judgment on that, Jacko. There's probably enough yeah. in the public record for you to make your own assessment. He did seem to have this, uh, to me, unrealistic idea that uh, American ships would simply turn up to a North Korean port and the uh, the nukes would be loaded on and would sail off into the sunset and that would be, would be the end of the matter. Oh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, we, we, had had, we had done a lot of planning, you know, across the U.S. government on what denuclearization would look like from a very practical sense. And, mm. and uh, you know, there, there are organizations who are prepared, you know, to follow up if North Korea makes that decision. Uh, there are organizations that are prepared to prepare to be to begin to do it tomorrow, right? And and so I I think uh, I, I don't think that that he had any kind of an idea that it would be that easy or you know or that simple. Okay, that, that is certainly good to clarify. I do look forward to having him on one day. Uh, you write uh, that in your meeting in June 2017 with Jong Young, uh, that your strategy on North Korea was quote the United States would work with others to apply unwavering, integrated, and multinational pressure on the Kim regime. We thought that the alignment of South Korean, U.S. and Japanese policies toward North Korea was the starting point for garnering broad international support for denuclearization. Is it your view, General, that such a policy is still the right way to go? And can it actually succeed, uh, given what we said earlier about China? You know, I, I do still think it's it's the the right approach. And and do I think it can succeed? I think I think maybe, Jacko, I think maybe, you know, I, I can't tell you for sure. It, of course, like anything, it depends on. It depends, of course, on execution. I mean, how about Jacko? Really, what if, what if what if what if the United States and, and and our partners really did our best to enforce the UN Security Council approved sanctions on the North? You know, why did it take a French vessel, Jacko, to uh, mm. to interdict ship to ship transfers that were circumventing those sanctions? Well, I, I think we got a, we have a few ships in the U.S. Navy, you know, mm. and and the Japanese Navy and the South Korean Navy. What about really going after the cyber crime network associated uh, with the Kim family regime and doing everything that we can 
uh, with, a, with a concerted multinational effort to shut off their access to criminal activity that, that allows them allows them to, to keep that regime on on life support. You know, what if what if uh, those countries that are facilitating the circumvention of sanctions are hit with secondary sanctions on their banking systems uh, or the bank or the offending banks? Uh, th- th- what what if there were sanctions placed on those entities that are complicit with North Korean slave labor because they haven't returned the so-called guest workers uh, back to back to North Korea? So you know, I think with these with these UN uh, UN uh, Security Council approved sanctions, there's still quite a lot of room, you know, to to enforce them effectively. Right, but without the uh, the active participation of China, it seems that unwavering, integrated, and multinational pressure on North Korea would would have that, you know, um, the leaky valve somewhere. Well, I, th- I think that's I think that's right. Uh, but but uh, I'll, there's a lot that can be done independent of China, and I think some of these actions uh, might be helpful in, in convincing the Chinese Communist Party that the world is serious about this. Right. I I think one of the one of the aspects of the of the rift, the the growing rift uh, in over the last several years between South Korea and Japan that that I lamented was that I think this encouraged China, encouraged China to continue to use North Korea as a way. To, to separate the United States from our allies and, and our allies from one another. And, and I think it's important that, you know, that every North Korean provocation that uh, be, be seen by the Chinese as, as driving us all closer together. When I say us really uh, like-minded uh, nations uh, who share this, this, this concern over, over North Korea uh, obtaining the most destructive weapons on earth. And, and, you know, Jacko, when, when we're, as we're worried about, you know, jihadist terrorists, other terrorist organizations, yeah. you know, gaining, you know, gaining access to the most destructive weapons on earth. I think, I think the danger of that goes up, you know, by orders of magnitude, if North Korea has these weapons. Yeah, you, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how you worked very closely together with Yachi Shotaro of Japan and uh, Jong Yong of South Korea to work out these common principles and understanding of North Korea's nuclear threat and how to deal with that. Uh, given the fact that um, you, you all three of you from democratic countries and uh, you know, you cycle in and out of roles every couple of years. Doesn't that make North Korea by default the winner because of its regime continuity and longevity? Well, not by default the winner because you know, I mean, I don't think I don't think I would call North Korea a winner, right? When you look right. when you look at uh, what life is like above the thirty eighth parallel. Uh, but but I, but I I would say that that the lack of a consistent long term approach to policy, uh, a policy that needs to be flexible, right? I mean, strategy is not fixed and. And then, then executed uh, in an immutable way, you know, for, into the foreseeable future, because we're continuously interacting, right, with you know, with with, with adversaries and rivals that 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 uh, whose actions are difficult to predict at the outset, and demand that we continually reassess and adopt our strategies. But but I think I think the point that you're making is is fun is sound, and that we are at a disadvantage, right, in our in our democratic yeah. uh, governments, uh, because we do have changes in leadership, changes in approaches. That would allows at times our adversaries to just wait us out, right, and yeah. and and to try try something different, uh, and, and so, um, you know, I think there, there's a way to to mitigate that risk, and that's through trying to cultivate bipartisan support, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think there's any reason at all, Jacko, why North Korea should be a partisan issue in the United States, and I, I don't think it is. You know, I, I mean, I think you know, hey, who raise your hand if you're for, you know, the only communist. You know, totalitarian, hereditary dictatorship in the world having the most destructive weapons on earth, right? Who's going to raise their hand on that? So, sure. so I, I think that 
you know, I think that you know, I certainly want the Biden administration to succeed in, with this very difficult problem set, and uh, and they deserve our support on it. It is tough. Though. I mean, as you say, nobody in America on either side of the political divide supports North Korea or its nuclear program per se. But when it comes down to actual uh, things that the United States tries, uh, you know, for example, famously during the uh, the period running up to and just after the summit in Singapore, you know, the Democrats are very strongly against leader to leader communication uh, with North Korea. I, I couldn't help but wonder at the time that it, if it had been a Democratic uh, president who had had those discussions with Kim Jong Un, that it would have right. been the Republicans who had been calling out for uh, for his head. You know. Well, I think you're exactly right. And today on NK Pro, you know, I saw the uh, I saw the article that covered the statement by the Russian ambassador, which right, which makes me think so think of uh, uh, of really uh, how President Biden is 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 coping with this you know this coercive uh, campaign that could lead to uh, a renewal of the war in in Ukraine. Uh, with the deployment of, I think it's fifty some battalion tactical groups, and you know, and and landing craft to to, to launch a you know a Normandy style invasion uh, of of Ukraine and, and so forth, and the you know the the uh, the threatening language and the you know the false stories of Ukrainian provocation. So you know, Pre President Biden has, has in the last twenty four hours referenced his conversation uh, with Putin and offered to meet with Putin in a third country withdrawn some of our naval vessels from, from off off of the Ukrainian uh, coast and and sanctioned Russia right for yeah. uh, for the cyber attacks now that doesn't seem like super consistent to me Jacko but hmm. if that if that had been if that had been Trump I think people would have been up in arms uh right. so so I think there is still a partisan dimension I think it's very unfortunate I mean I I really hope and that we reverse this this polarization here in America along partisan political lines, and I, I think I think there's the best chance for that is that the American people should demand that their political leaders and representatives don't compromise our our security our principles just to score partisan political points. Yeah. Now, why do you uh, believe that Kim Jong Un agreed to participate in the? Uh, 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, and then you know the, the rapprochement that led to the various summits. You know, I I don't know, <laughs> but I think I think that you know I think the uh, the chances are very high that it was the maximum pressure campaign. You know, and and it was the maximum pressure campaign in connection with the sanctions and the diplomatic efforts and the sending states conference that was held in Alaska and and uh, and the and the the unprecedented UN Security Council sanctions that Ambassador Nikki Haley did a tremendous job. Uh, get, get, getting through, uh, but it was also our military preparations, Jacko. That has that a lot to do with it, right? I mean, and and I think Kim Jong Un thought, wow, you know, maybe I do need to pursue a different course other than these provocations because I might get more than I bargained for. And so, you know, I uh, uh, Secretary George Schultz, who was here with us at, at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, uh, what a tremendous uh, American statesman. You know, he he once said that that negotiation is a euphemism for capitulation mm. unless the shadow of power is cast across the negotiating table. So I, I think that's your answer, Jacko, is why maybe he was looking to, to begin the inter-Korean dialogue, you know, go, go to the Olympics, begin the inter-Korean dialogue, and then seek a, a, a summit with uh, President Trump. Now, you probably heard this on the podcast before, but we've now got two working theories about uh... Uh, about what happened there in 2018. One is that sanctions and pressure was working. And the other is that uh, Kim felt confident that his weapons systems were advanced enough that he was able to uh, to come out and talk. 
Well, Jack, it could be, it could be, right? I don't pretend to understand what's going on in his head, man. <laughs> around him. Yeah. None, none of us do. And what I love about your podcast and NK Pro is you never speculate. I mean, I you have real experts on there who are willing to say, you know, I don't really know. That's it's really hard for us to understand what's going on in Pyongyang. So let, let me let me just invoke that clause of not knowing <laughs> what's going on uh, inside the Pyongyang government. So is it then the the uh, lack of consistency in in uh, maximum pressure that would explain in your mind um Kim Jong Un's silence and reluctance to respond to overtures from both South Korea and the US in the last couple of years since the failure of the Hanoi summit? I think that's possible but then also you know I and of course I'm not an expert at this right I mean and and uh Andre is the person I listen to uh, to to try to figure this out but but it might be what's going on internally as well right it's been one heck of a year uh, mm. for for North Korea with you know with COVID nineteen with the floods you know with you know with uh, the the economy in in a severe downturn energy shortages right remember the reports uh, you know several months ago that uh, on NK Pro of the binge buying you know in, in Pyongyang yeah. um, this uh, this I think new dynamic uh, about which uh, Lankoff writes in in the real North Korea of this new class right in in Pyongyang of mm -hmm. of a privileged class kind of for the first time who have a lot more to lose right than others yeah. had in the past so there's a new element of of pressure I think uh in North Korea um and so so I I, I just don't know Jacko but I but I, I think it could I suspect it has as much to do with internal dynamics as it does uh with any kind of security calculation on his part we're now uh, still in the first 100 days of uh, President Biden's administration at the time of recording this interview. Uh, the North Korea policy review is either still incomplete or if it has been completed, it hasn't been leaked uh, to me yet. If you were in charge of North Korea policy now or advising those who are, what path would you choose to achieve U.S. interest in terms of relations and negotiations with North Korea? Well, I think what we what I would try to do is, is organize, you know, kind of a... Uh, you know, a a a, a a war game, but not war meaning, you know, actual use of military force, uh, but try to bring together, you know, experts uh, on North Korea, those who have interacted uh, with the North Korean regime, who understand it better than than others. Uh, and and then and then try to you know, clarify the assumptions on which the policy would be based uh, and then run through a series of likely or, or plausible uh, scenarios. And then, and then you know, for the negative ones, to then backward, back off from those and say, is there anything we could do now to prevent this really bad scenario from happening in the future? And I think that's a way to think about these complex threats that are still evolving. And um, and I think oftentimes, you know, we we're confronted with the disaster. You know, we're we're you know we're we're 20 years away now from the most devastating terrorist attacks in history of September 11, 2001. Uh, and then we did a lot, right? We did a lot after those attacks to protect ourselves from jihadist terrorist organizations. So the question I would often ask our National Security Council staff is: Think about uh, uh, a plausible scenario that would be that would be terrible, devastating uh, for the United States, and then think about what you would do right after uh, th that event or that scenario, and, and 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 ask the question: Why aren't we doing that right now uh, to prevent it? rather than to have to respond to a catastrophe. And I think that kind of thinking applies maybe even to pandemics. Right. Okay. So um, kind of a simulation, uh, map out the different scenarios and see, you know, what are the worst ones and how can they be uh, prevented? 
That's right. Yeah. And and this was this is always imperfect, right? Because we only we we only have an opaque view of what's happening inside of North Korea. So you have to make some assumptions about the maturity of the program, you know, the capabilities that uh, the, of the different components of being able to threaten uh, the world with the most destructive weapons. And, and so that, that, that you, this, whenever you can put together your intelligence people, operations people, academic uh, experts and others, I mean, I, you know, these sorts of complex problems require an interdisciplinary approach, right? And so I think creating the right venue for that at the highest levels not to do like the detailed planning that goes on like in, in the Department of Defense or something, mm -hmm. but just to pay particular attention to the integration of elements of, of national power and efforts of like-minded partners. What can we do together? And I think it's also very important to do this with allies, right? Because each of us bring different competitive advantages to the problem. And we can agree that, that each of us will take on certain responsibilities, certain parts of the problem, such that our efforts are synergistic. And you already alluded to this, I write in the book that at times, unfortunately, we've worked across purposes from our allies, and of course, that's what you want to prevent. It, it must also be the case, though, that uh, in mapping out these scenarios and, and doing some simulations, uh, that some assumptions are made about the intentions or the uh, the will of uh, the North Korean leader. Even though, as you said, we can't ever know anyone's uh, you know what's right. going on in somebody else's mind. So, how do how does that tension work itself out? Well, I, I mean, I think you, you have somebody role play who, who, who knows something about Kim Jong-un, right? And, and give it your best shot, right? Uh, you know, you, uh, you, do, you read the great successor you know, or whatever you can to get a better yeah. idea of, of how he might respond and, and to make sure you guard against the cognitive traps, right? That are always fatal for policy and lead to folly. And those cognitive traps are what I, what I write about in Battlegrounds is a strategic narcissism, right? The, the tendency to define the world only in relation to us and to assume that what we do or decide not to do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. And the self-referential view of the world that we, that we tend to take as Americans at times uh, is, is, is a problem because it undervalues the degree to which others, in this case, yeah. the North Korean regime, the Chinese, others have authorship over the future. And then it makes you susceptible to mirror imaging, to optimism bias, to confirmation bias. So you, you, need, you need people uh, who are going to question assumptions, who are going to provide the expertise necessary. And, you know, Jack, in a book I wrote a long time ago called Dereliction of Duty, which, which is a, a book about how and why Vietnam became an American war. I tell the story of the Sigma war games in 1964. These war games were conducted to test uh, the graduated pressure theory uh, that Robert McNamara had devised to give Lyndon Johnson the answer Lyndon Johnson wanted on Vietnam. It was a fundamentally flawed strategy. This simulation ends four years later in 1968. It ends with 500,000 American troops in, in Vietnam uh, with, with, no, uh, with no prospect for success and the American people losing faith in the effort. And of course, that it was an eerily prophetic result yeah. Uh, and sadly, it was ignored, right? So, so I think it, it's important to, to to create these kind of venues that allow you to provide a corrective to what would be unrealistic and oftentimes implicit and flawed assumptions that underpin policy. But then, of course, you have to pay attention to it as well. Now, General McMaster, I'm curious, did you ever in your time, uh, either in the U.S. military or in the, the White House, did you ever meet a North Korean? I never did, Jacko. I never did. 
I wonder, I wonder how that would have gone. That would have been an interesting uh, conversation. I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how it would have gone. Um, I tried to meet as many people as I could who had met North Koreans in the past and, and, uh, and just, to, to, you know, just to get some of their advice. And, of course, we had the great uh, Allison Hooker uh, on oh, our yeah. team and the NFC staff. She's wonderful and, uh, and so knowledgeable and was you know, a great source of advice for me and for the president. Uh, but but uh, I, ne I never had the opportunity, Jacko. Did you ever talk to uh, Stephen Began about his uh, time talking with North Koreans? You know, not yet. You know, he was kind of busy. I do need to reconnect with him. I talked yes. to him a couple of times. You know, when he was when he was at state after he became the deputy. Uh, but but I, you know, he didn't have time to fill me in on his experiences. But I'd love to catch up with him and and uh, and and hear his thoughts and insights. Let him know that I too would love to catch up with him here on this very podcast. <laughs> He's a great guy too. Talk about just a you know just a a humble person, a very strong character, uh, a real selfless servant, uh, and and uh, someone that uh, the, the State Department and was was very fortunate to have on the team there. He did project himself very well in uh, media appearances, I must say. And I had a friend who uh, went to see him speaking at uh, Stanford. Uh, you know that that very famous talk he gave. Um, right before the, the Pyeongchang Olympics, I think it was in late 2017, that gave a lot of people right. hope for positive develops, developments between the US and North Korea. Right, well, it, it, depends, on, it depends on both sides, right? You know, yeah. and I think the disappointment was in these unrealistic expectations by the North. And I wonder, and I'd like to hear what, uh, what uh, Mr. Began thinks about this as well, but mm. I wonder if, if Pyongyang was getting some really, really bad advice from Beijing at that time. And, and was get and was getting it on purpose, right? I mean, I yep. I think when 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 the news first broke, right, that President Trump was going to meet with Kim Jong Un, I, I think Xi Jinping got a little case of FOMO, you know, <laughs> or what my daughters would call FOMO, right? And right. Uh, and and really feared, perhaps more than anything else, a resolution of this crisis in in a way that did not involve China and therefore marginalized China to some extent. So, I mean, I'm speculating here, Jacko, but, but uh, that's, that's what I was thinking at the time. Now, your, uh, your book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, will be coming out in a Korean translation in August. Uh, of course, it's already out uh, in English. I recommend people read it. What's the message you hope to leave Korean readers with? Well, I think that the message I hope to, uh, to leave Korean re readers with is that together we can achieve a much higher degree of strategic competence to advance and protect our interests. And 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 I think if we think clearly about the problems we face and 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 the common principles and values that bind bind us together as allies, we can also restore our confidence, right? Our confidence mm -hmm. not only in in in, uh, in our ability to implement a sustained and reasoned approach to foreign policy and and challenges like a like uh, like North Korea and its pursuit of of missiles and and nuclear weapons, uh, but also we can restore confidence in our democratic principles and institutions. And processes, as well as who we are as, as a free people. That's those are some of the themes of the book, Jacko. And I think they they I think they apply across the free world. Well, that is a, a certainly a, a good and hopeful place to uh, to finish our uh, conversation on today, uh, General McMaster. I want to thank you once more for coming on the NK News podcast, Jacko. Thank you, and thanks for the great service that this podcast and, and NK Pro provides. I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find General McMaster on Twitter and Instagram at LTGHRMcMaster uh, for all your Twitter and Instagram needs. Are you, do you post a lot of photographs, General? You know, a, a few on Instagram. You know, I'm not, you know, I've, I've got to get better at it, you know, but I'll, I'll post photos of, you know, for example, the books I'm reading, that sort of thing. 
Ah. And then links, you know, links to, to, to essays and uh, that I think are important for understanding the complex challenges we're facing or, or maybe some of the latest things that I've been writing and so forth. Uh, but, I, but I hope it's, a, it's useful to people. And, and I hope that it, it, it fulfills this overall purpose, right, of trying to bring people together yes. for respectful, meaningful discussions of the challenges we face so we can build a better world for generations to come. 